First Timothy chapter one, we'll be looking at the last three verses, verses 18 through 20. Please give your full attention to God's holy and errant word. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. But our minds are dull. Our hearts are hard. We need your spirit to enable us to listen with discernment, to compare what we hear to what your word clearly says. And as your word is faithfully proclaimed, I pray that you would use it by your spirit to transform us, to encourage us, to strengthen us for the battle. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the midst of all of the great epic events that are described for us in the scriptures, things like creation, the flood, the Ten Commandments, the conquest of the promised land, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are sprinkled in the midst of these epic events some very small incidents, but yet they're amazingly profound in their meaning for us. One of those is found in the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. To put it in context, the Israelites have just finished their generation of, of uh, wilderness wanderings. They have miraculously been ushered over the Jordan River. Their feet are standing for the first time in the promised land. But they know that this land is going to come with a, with a war, with a fight. And Joshua has now taken the place of Moses as the leader of God's people and the leader of God's army, Israelites' army. And so as he takes on the commission, the charge that God had given to him, the first step, the first battle is supposed to take place at the city of Jericho. And so Joshua goes on a reconnaissance mission. As he, I can only imagine him sneaking around in the bushes around the city of Jericho, taking measure of its walls, how high are they, how thick are they, how well defended is the city. I can realize, you know, in the midst of that, I'm sure he's realizing that his ragtag army has no chance unless God intervenes. But as he's contemplating this and trying to put together his plan of attack, and this is, of course, before God had informed him that the walls would come down by shouts and trumpets, not by weapons. But as he's still making his plan, and he's walking through the, 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 the area around Jericho, suddenly in his path he's confronted with a mighty warrior. This warrior has his sword drawn. And so it's easy for us to imagine that Joshua pulled out his sword and assumes a defensive position. Because it says in the text that he doesn't recognize me, he doesn't he, 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 something about the warrior's appearance tells him this is not an Israelite warrior and it's not a warrior from Jericho. It's not a Canaanite warrior. And so he asks the obvious question in that situation. Warrior, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? 
And the warrior answers, no. And I'm sure, put yourself in the sandals of Joshua at that point, you're like, wait, do you not speak my language? Do you not understand my question? This wasn't a yes or no question. Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? And the warrior says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. There is a deep and profound life principle in that warrior's answer. I am the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua. The question isn't whether I'm for, for the Israelites or for the Canaanites, the people from Jericho. That's not the question. The only question that really matters is, are you on my side? Are you on the Lord's side of the ultimate battle? He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. We fight for the kingdom of God. We fight for the glory of God. And we fight for the purposes of God. And it says at that point that Joshua fell on his face, drops his sword, falls on his face, and he worships the warrior. And he says to the warrior, what are my orders? He basically says, what does my Lord say to his servant? Give me my marching orders. I will serve you. Now, any trustworthy commentator will tell you that this is a pre-incarnation appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do know that in many places, the angel of the Lord appears and speaks as God. And most conservative commentators would say that's Christ appearing in human form before his, his actual incarnation in Bethlehem. And we know that because, first of all, he is the, the Lord Jesus, we know, nowhere else from the book of Revelation, the commander of the armies of the Lord. But more importantly, this warrior accepts the worship of Joshua. Only God can be worshiped. But he accepts the worship of Joshua. And then he tells Joshua to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground, which is a sign of the very presence of God. This story is an important reminder to all of us, especially as we continue in our studies in 1 Timothy. In the battles that we face, and we face many different kinds of conflict in life in a fallen world, the question isn't, is God on our side? The only important question is, are we on his side? Do we fight with the commander of the armies of the Lord? Do we fight for the glory of God? Do we fight for the kingdom of God? We spend a lot of time in life picking sides, don't we? And so if you ask the question, is God for America or is God for Russia? No. Is God for the Republicans or is God for the Democrats? No. Is God for Penn State? Or Ohio State? No. Is God for the Presbyterians? Or is he for the Baptists? No. We are all striving to be on his side. And we need to fight for his side. We fight a lot. But sometimes we're not really fighting for his side in this spiritual war. All, in all of life's conflicts, we need to remember that ultimately there are only two sides. God's side and Satan's side. 
Scriptures are clear about that from the very beginning. There's only two sides in this ages-long war. God's side and Satan's side, the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of darkness. In this passage, Paul addresses Timothy directly and speaks to him like his commanding officer. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but the word charge, where he says there in the beginning in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, that's a military term. He uses that, that four times in the short book of 1 Timothy. He, he gives him a charge, and he's speaking, because it's a military term, he's speaking like a commanding officer. Here are your marching orders, Timothy. And what, it begs the question, what charge is he talking about? What has he been commanded to? He's referring to something he's already mentioned. And so we go back, it's actually talking about everything that he's said so far between verses 3 and, and uh, verses 17. But it's, I think, best summarized beginning in verse 3. Let me read that port, part to you again. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. I charge you, Timothy, to charge others not to teach false doctrines nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is to love is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We're going to see in a moment that a clear conscience and true faith is really the key to fighting this battle. The battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness has always been a battle over truth. Don't ever forget that. That's the issue. Sometimes we get confused about what the issue is between us and the forces of darkness. But it's a battle over truth. God is truth, and all truth is defined by God. And Satan is known as the deceiver. His whole purpose is to corrupt truth and to dissuade people from believing the truth. And the battle began and the front lines of the battle were established when Satan whispered in the ear of Eve, has God really said? Did God really say that? Can you trust what he has revealed to be true? And so we fight the same battle today. The key phrase in this short passage we looked at this morning is found here. It's at the end of verse 18. He says, wage the good warfare. You probably are more familiar with the old translation of that, fight the good fight, the one we just heard sung about. Fight the good fight is what he's saying there. Now, remember what you've learned about Timothy. Timothy was timid. He, you, from reading these two letters, you get the idea he was fearful about the responsibility and obviously here about the forces of evil that were against him. And when somebody's timid, a lot of times, I don't know if this is true about Timothy, but a lot of times people that are timid are kind of naturally non-confrontational. And so they're happy to teach and preach, but if they get into conflict, they tend to back off. And it's easy for me to believe that Timothy had that trait as well. And add to this that we know that Timothy was young, and it's very possible that the false teachers in Ephesus that he was being assigned to go to war against were older than he was. And so for many reasons, you understand why Paul needs to give Timothy a pep talk here. He needs to get him ready to go to battle. And as we look at what he says, we can find many things that help us to know how to go to battle in our daily lives. Because you are in a war every day. No matter how mundane your life looks, 
You go to battle every day as a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, our problem today isn't that we're fearful of the forces against us. That was Timothy's issue. That's not our issue. We just ignore it. We just don't pay attention to it. We just dismiss the forces that are against us. We're even not aware of them much of the time. And so we need a passage like this. You know, the, you know in Ephesians 6, there's such a uh, uh, familiar discussion there where Paul talks about the armor of God that each one of us should be applying to ourselves every day and we think about the different elements of the armor, the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and we think, oh, this is all just one big metaphor, and we make the mistake of thinking of the whole passage as a metaphor. But you need to realize he's talking about real spiritual beings, real spiritual forces, real spiritual authorities in the context of the metaphor of the armor of God. Let me read that section to you at the beginning. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So it's against that kind of a background, that kind of a charge that he says to Timothy, you need to be ready to go to battle. So how do we do that? How do we not only fight the good fight, but make sure that we're on God's side? Timothy is a preacher and a pastor. And it is true that in a sense, what's said here applies mostly to leaders. I wouldn't say mostly, in a particular way, to leaders, to preachers, to pastors, to elders in the church, those who are ordained to spiritual authority. But it applies to all of us as well. Now, why am I making reference to his ordination? Because I think that's what Paul's referring to when he says, this charge I entrust to you in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, that gives us a hint because Paul elsewhere refers to prophecies that were made about Timothy. If you go over to chapter 4, in verses 13 and 14, there you'll see Paul refer to these prophecies again. He'll say, do not, oh, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Prophecy was a temporary gift given in the time of the apostles. Until the scriptures were completed, God spoke to his people through the Old Testament scriptures, as well as through some New Testament prophets. And so until the scriptures were complete, we wouldn't need that kind of prophecy anymore because we would have the totality of God's revelation of truth. God used prophets to speak to his people during that first century. And those prophets, when, when Timothy was ordained, and that's what it means to lay hands on, when, when the elders laid hands on Timothy, that was his ordination, there were prophecies given about him and his ministry. And so Timothy has already received this charge and Paul is reminding him of it, saying God has called you to go to battle. And like I said, don't dismiss what he said here because you're not a pastor, you're not an elder. Because we have all been commissioned in a different sense. We've all been commissioned as soldiers in this spiritual war. Jesus, when he was about to go to take his throne, to reign over all nations, reign over the universe. 
he called his disciples together and he said to them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. We are all commissioned by Christ to take his word to the nations and to make disciples. That is the, the very focus of what spiritual warfare is all about. It's all about taking the truth to those who need to hear it. And so Paul points to two essentials in preparing for battle here. And I think you find it in the phrase that's in verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith and a good conscience. I want to look at these separately. First of all, fighting the good fight means holding to the faith. You notice I added a word there. Holding to the faith. Because I think to understand what Paul means by faith there, you need to add that adjective because that's what he means. Not Timothy's subjective faith. In other words, his level of trust in Christ. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the faith. In other words, the faith that has been revealed by God. The essential doctrines that we believe. That's the faith. I know this because over in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul uses the same phrase, fight the good fight. And he adds, fight the good fight of the faith. Jude says in Jude verse 3, I have found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. What faith? The faith that was once delivered to the saints. You see, we believe that all we need to know for faith and practice is contained right here. From Genesis to Revelation is the completeness of God's revealed truth. It's not everything that God could reveal but it is what we need to know for faith and life. And nothing is to be taken away from it. Nothing is to be added to it. And we need to fight, not only to proclaim it, but to protect it from those who seek to corrupt it. Once for all delivered. The faith that we're talking about is faith about Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who became man and became our redeemer by dying for our sins on the cross and being raised from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the father in heaven to reign over all as our sovereign Lord. That's the faith. The essential doctrines that make up that message is what scripture is about. And Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the same yesterday. He's the same today. And he's the same forever. He will never change, therefore the truth will never change. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul says to Timothy again, he says, Preach the word, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Every Church, every pastor, every elder has always, in every age, has had to deal with the fact that this is reality in the church. Is there always are going to be people with itching ears who go to find some new truth, something different, something cutting edge, something more pleasing to the flesh. It's something we always will have to deal with until Christ comes again. And I'm here to say if anybody, myself, Owen, Joe, Richard, if anybody stands in this pulpit and tells you something new, run. I've said that to people before. If I tell you something that's new that nobody's ever thought of before, nobody's ever preached before, nobody's ever taught before, it's wrong. 
Because there is no new truth. This is the truth. Paul says that this truth has power to transform. In the armor of the Lord, it's called the sword. It's the aggressive, offensive weapon that we have. And Paul talks about the power of this weapon over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen to what he says there about the truth of God's word. He says, for the weapons of our warfare, this is 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's spiritual warfare. I mean, we, you wonder, I mean, spiritual warfare sounds so mysterious and superstitious and, you know, like something you could, should see in the movie theater, but it's, it's all about standing for the truth, proclaiming the truth, protecting the truth, sharing the truth. That's spiritual warfare. Every time you speak to someone about God's word, whether it's having coffee with your neighbor at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning or leading a Bible study on Wednesday night or teaching in a Sunday school class or preaching from a pulpit, anywhere you share God's word with another person, you are wielding the sword of the spirit and you are performing an, an aggressive act against the kingdom of darkness for the glory of God and you're advancing the kingdom of God. If your life feels mundane, think about that. And remember as you do that, and I think this is an important thing to say to people in our theological circles, the power is in the word itself. It's not in your intelligence. It's not in your cleverness. It's not in your sales pitch. It's not in anything about you. The power is in the word itself. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. He says this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you notice what the attitude of the bearer of the sword is as he presents the powerful, transforming word of God? Kindness, gentleness, patience towards your opponent, towards the person you disagree with. You see, that keeps the focus upon the word itself and the power being there, not on how clever you are in wielding it. The Lord's servant should not be quarrelsome. Many times, Paul condemns quarrelsomeness over and over in Scripture. You can't be a leader in the church, Paul says, if you're, if you're a quarrelsome person. Because we don't advance the truth by quarreling with people. We advance the truth by sharing it, and it's the Holy Spirit that persuades people, not us. It's his job, not ours. That's the first one. You need to hold to the faith. The second way to be prepared to fight well is to maintain a good conscience. Paul talks about this actually, when he, remember when he stood before the Roman governor Felix? He stood before him on trial. And he said to Felix, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. It was important to Paul's effectiveness in ministry that he kept a clear conscience. 
before the Lord and before people. All people have a conscience, everybody. That's something that Lord, the Lord instills in everyone who's created to restrain our wickedness. As we talked about it a couple weeks ago, it's a vague sense of right and wrong that prevents us from pursuing our evil nature to its logical conclusions, restrains our wickedness. It can't save us, but it keeps us from becoming more evil. All of our consciences are broken. All of our consciences are in need of repair. And what the Bible teaches is that some people have a strong conscience, some people have a weak conscience, some people, and this would be talking about unbelievers only, have a seared conscience. In other words, their conscience is so burnt and burned over that it doesn't work anymore, doesn't restrain their wickedness anymore. We need to have a growing conscience that fits and conforms to the word of God. John Calvin once wrote, listen to what he said. He said, all, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. You have to think about that one a minute. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. I'll tell you where that gets real. Is where you think about somebody you know who has departed. They professed belief at one point in their life, claimed to be following Christ, claimed to be a Christian, but they turned their back and walked away. In my experience, nine times out of 10, they lost their good conscience first before they departed from the faith. They chose the deceitfulness of Satan and the ways of the world and fell into sin and then decided to change their beliefs to fit their behavior. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. So Paul says, you want to fight the good fight? You want to get in there and mix it up? You need to go in holding to the faith and with a clear conscience. Born-again believers who have the power of the Holy Spirit working within them have their consciences restored. That's, that's the story of our lives, that our consciences are being re-educated, reprogrammed to conform to the will of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Word together reforming our conscience. And a good, clear conscience is maintained by putting the truth into practice. In other words, being obedient to the will of God. And when you sin, and you will sin many, many times over and over, when you sin, you go to Christ. You go to the cross. You look to the blood that was shed on the cross to pay for your sins, and you're renewed again by his grace and his forgiveness. That's how you keep a clear conscience. This worship service is an opportunity for you to walk out of here with a clear conscience. You want to do that this morning? You want to walk out of here with a clear conscience so you're ready to wield the, the sword of the word as you go to battle this week? Here's your opportunity. You put yourself under the teaching of the word of God and then you come to the Lord's table and you take the bread and you take the cup and you renew yourself in the grace of the forgiveness of Christ that was available to you, made available to you at the cross. You're prepared to know the truth and you are cleansed in your conscience by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The third and final element to being prepared to go to battle is that you do so accountable to your fellow soldiers. 
that you do so accountable to the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's referring to in verses 19 and 20. Paul points to two former members that everybody in the church in Ephesus knew. They were probably leaders of the church of Ephesus. And he used, Paul uses them as a cautionary tale, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These two men became, they professed to be believers, they became teachers, but then they became false teachers. They became heretics. And ultimately, Paul says, they were excommunicated or put out of the church. It's interesting, over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Hymenaeus is mentioned again, this time with, another, with, a, with a, uh, a different cohort. Uh, there it's Philetus. And it talks about the heresy they were teaching. It's interesting to me that Alexander's not named in 2 Timothy. So even though Hymenaeus was thrown out of the church, excommunicated, he's still, by the time Paul writes the second letter, still causing problems in Ephesus from the outside in, so to speak. But Alexander's not mentioned. And I, you know, I don't know what happened to Alexander. Maybe he died. Maybe he moved to another city. Or maybe, and I just, this is the optimist in me. I'm a, a, a kind of a glass half full kind of guy. I would like to think he repented. I would like to think that excommunication did what it's supposed to do, is it shook him to his senses, and he came back to the truth, and he came back to Christ, and was restored. We don't know. But that's important to understand, that excommunication is a severe mercy. Severe in the sense it's harsh. Matter of fact, harsh, much harsher than we tend to think of it being. I mean, the church doesn't even excommunicate anymore. I mean, how many excommunications have you witnessed and heard about in the church? It's a, it's a lost means of grace in the church of Jesus Christ. But when it's done right, it is a harsh sentence. Because what happens is, according to what Jesus taught us in Matthew 18, you're, when you see a brother in sin or in heresy, you're to go to him one-on-one -on -one to try to plead with him to repent and come back to the truth and come back to Christ and come back to the church. But if he refuses after a reasonable amount of appeals, then you go and you get another brother or sister or maybe two and you go and talk to them as a group. And if they won't repent at that point, then after multiple appeals, you go to the church and the leaders of the church begin to exercise discipline. And, and in the midst of all this, is probably many times, it's months and months in the making, but you've got multiple appeals. You've got many different brothers and sisters coming and appealing to this sinner to turn from its, his heresy or to turn from his sin. But at that point, the church, to be faithful to the commission that Paul gives, needs to excommunicate, to put them out of the church, to remove from them the privileges of membership and to designate them as even though they may profess belief, they are acting as an unbeliever. And they are to be treated as an unbeliever. But Paul actually, to talk about how harsh this is, Paul, do you notice the phrase he uses for it? He calls it being handed over to Satan. Because he's talking about spiritual warfare. So he puts something like that in light of the spiritual warfare. Is that when you are excommunicated, when you are put out of the church because of your repeated refusal to repent, you are actually siding with Satan. You're siding with the kingdom of darkness. And you're saying, that's where I would rather be. And that is the most dangerous place you can possibly be. Handed over to Satan. In other words, being on Satan's side of this great spiritual war. But I call this a harsh mercy, mercy a severe mercy. Because Paul says in verse 20 about 
Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's the mercy. The purpose is to teach. The purpose is to, to shake them to their senses, to wake them up to how far they've strayed. Church discipline is done in the hope that the person will be restored through faith and repentance. Over in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses another church discipline case that he dealt with there in Corinth. And he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan, there it is again, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Nothing grieves a body of believers more than excommunicating a, a professing Christian. But it's done in, as a, as a last-ditch hope that it'll drive them to their knees in repentance. And I just need to add a point here because, again, we don't do church discipline. One of the reasons we don't do church discipline in church as much anymore is we don't really take a very serious view of membership. If people aren't members, you can't discipline them. You can't be excommunicated unless you're first communicated. <laughs> Excommunication means put out of the communion of God's people. You're not a member in good standing anymore. And so that's why membership is so important. It's, what it is, it's putting yourself under accountability. And that's not a very popular idea these days. To make yourself accountable to spiritual leaders in a church. And by doing so, you say, if I stray, if my life becomes so sinful that I am deserving excommunication, please do it. Please do whatever it takes to wake me up. Don't let me go out. Don't hand me over to Satan. Membership is making yourself accountable to the leaders of a biblical church. And it's a crucial safeguard in your spiritual growth and your spiritual battles. You see, we live in a culture that resists accountability. We see it as, as somehow oppressive as somehow giving up our rights. But we do it to our own detriment. The Lord intends accountability to help us to continue to walk in the ways of the Lord, to keep us safe, to keep us in the church. Spiritual warfare. I don't know what kind of images that throws up in your mind when you hear that phrase. In our theological circles, we tend to downplay it or disregard it, as I said. And we tend to associate it with churches that have bizarre worship practices and bizarre other practices. But spiritual warfare, as we've seen in this passage, is not about exorcisms. It's not pre about preoccupation with demonology. It's not about strange rituals. It's holding the faith and maintaining a good conscience. That's how you fight the war well. That's how you fight the good fight holding to the faith, maintaining a good conscience, and being willing to be accountable to the church. Paul says later in Timothy, in verse, chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching and on the faith. Hold to the faith, keep a clear conscience, and be accountable. That's how you fight well, fight the good fight by knowing the truth, pro proclaiming the truth, fighting for the truth, living by the truth, and then going to Christ and to his grace that's available through the cross to cover your failures to live by the truth. Let's pray.
Father, as we go to the Lord's table, we go as, and some of us are energetic warriors, some of us are confused warriors, some of us are weary warriors this morning. We thank you for the word of God that feeds us and strengthens us, equips us and prepares us for the battles we have to face this coming week. But now we come to the Lord's table to be refreshed in the grace that is available through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we need our consciences clear. Lord, we pray that as we confess our sins and as we approach you empty-handed to receive grace from you, that we will be made clean, we will be empowered, we will be encouraged, and we will be prepared to face whatever trials and difficulties you call us to face as we live in the midst of this conflict. We pray in Christ's name, amen.